we turn to your word now, we never want to do it apart from you. And as we read this section of Scripture and study it this evening, we, we don't want to do it with our collective wisdom or understanding of it, but to do it in fellowship with you and out of our relationship with you and under the influence of your beautiful Holy Spirit who is present in us and with us tonight. And so we ask that you would open it up to us, teach us, Lord, more about yourself and more about your plans and your purposes for our lives from the Scriptures, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. Matthew chapter 26, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and just get their attention some way, and they'll put a Bible into your hand, marked to our passage tonight, and if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you this evening. suppose if you were to ask the average um, pastor or teacher of the Word of God, what, is, what aspect of that calling in terms of trying to communicate uh, something that God has revealed in His Word and in human history is the hardest to communicate and in which you feel that uh, even at your very best, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, you, there's just, you walk away with a sense you've just scratched the surface where you look and say, no one can ever open this up but the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I certainly feel that every time we partake of the Lord's Supper and I introduce the Lord's Supper, who can begin to put into words uh, how heaven views that memorial of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The Garden of Gethsemane fits into that category very, very much uh, to me as well. It's, to me, it's extremely holy ground, holy ground in the context of holy ground because everything in the Bible is holy. And Jesus is in His final night before the cross. He's enjoyed the uh, Passover supper with His disciples in the city of Jerusalem. He's initiated the instituted the uh, institution of, of the Lord's Supper there, and then now he's going to make his way with the disciples across what is known as the Kidron Valley on the east side of Jerusalem into an area known as the Garden of Gethsemane. And we always visit the Garden of Gethsemane on a trip to Israel, and uh, it was a place in which olive groves were planted, and to this day they have olive trees that uh, they estimate to be as old as 1,800 years in that section of, um, uh, of, uh, of that side of the Kidron Valley. I mean, they just missed being eyewitnesses by a couple of hundred years. You say, oh, a couple hundred years, that's a lot. Not in the context of 2,000 years. And the Bible teaches concerning Jesus that He is all God and all man, all at the same time. Who can figure that out? Who can get their mind around that? How can you be all God and all man, all at the same time? And yet he is. 
And the Bible teaches, knowing full well what we discover as we try to probe it a little bit with our puny minds, is that it's a mystery. It's an absolute mystery. And that's why Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh. And it is in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think, that we have Jesus' humanity perhaps on its fullest display in all of the gospel. His humanity is obviously on display in terms of his physical body uh, from his birth on in his incarnation. But I'm talking about his humanity in terms of his emotion, in terms of his mind on display. I don't think it is anywhere more on display than in this um, section dealing with uh, the events of the Garden of Gethsemane. And to me, one of the reasons that this is precious to me, and it comes up in my mind regularly when we partake of the Lord's Supper, is that it gives me a glimpse at the price that Jesus paid to die on the cross for our sins that was way beyond the physical. The physical is horrific enough. The Bible said that by the time the Jewish religious leaders got done with him and the Roman soldiers got done with him, that his visage was so marred that nobody could have recognized him for who he was. Those are awful beatings. That's, that's more than a beating. That's the mutilation of a human being. And that's what he endured physically for us in the cross. But here we get a glimpse at what he endured emotionally and mentally related to the cross as well. And it is a priceless picture. And so then Jesus came, verse 36, with them, that is the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means olive press. It was a location where they would take the olives and they would roll massive stones over the olives in order to press them and press the pit in order to excrete the oil from the pit and uh, imagine the kind of pressing, the kind of pressure that is required to do that. It's appropriate that the events that we're about to read here all took place in Gethsemane because what, was ha what would happen there in the harvesting and the getting of oil from uh, the olives is something uh, in terms of the weight that was required. We're going to see a tremendous weight that is placed upon Jesus, so much that other gospels tell us that he sweated, as it were, great drops of blood in his agony in that environment. And again, I don't think that it was supremely the agony of knowing what was awaiting him the next day physically related to the cross, but related to another issue in his life. And let me just get to it then immediately related to that. And I think that what the agony is in this Garden of Gethsemane for Jesus is what Paul wrote in the New Testament where he said, and he that is the Father made him that is Jesus who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Jesus here in the Garden of Gethsemane is contemplating, I don't think supremely, the physical suffering of the cross the next day, but the fact that God would indeed turn his back on him in a way that had never happened. A communion would be broken within the Godhead between the Father and the Son. Again, a mystery. How can it happen? But it happened. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Everyone else, yes. The Bible says that Jesus did not give himself to men 
because he knew what was in the heart of man. But even on the cross, the necessity of the Father as he bore our sin, as Jesus bore our sin, and he bore the wrath that our sin deserved, the Father having to turn his back, so to speak, away from Jesus during that time. And Jesus was on that cross alone, so alone we can never imagine as it never happened within the Godhead ever before or will ever happen again while he bore our sin. I remember watching a movie a long time ago. I don't know what the movie was, but it imprinted something in my mind. I only remember a scene from it where they had some guy strapped down in a room. Maybe it's been in a lot of movies. I don't know. But they strapped this guy down in this seat in a room, and it's an old movie, and they had him strapped down in there, and all there was in front of him, like 180 degrees, are just uh, TV screens. And what is being played before his eyes over and over again is every atrocity that was going on in the world at that moment. Every atrocity in Thailand, every atrocity in the United States, in Chicago, in Russia, wherever it is, every sin that was being committed, every atrocity that had been done by the Nazis or uh, by Mao or whoever it had been all the way through history, all of this being put on these great screens. And what it was doing is, in terms of where he was seeing all of this, it was breaking him down. Because how much could you process? How much can you know? How much can you bear? And then you take Jesus. Perfection. Perfection. Sinless. And on that cross, these weren't TV screens or monitors. He took and he bore every single sin behind every atrocity in human history and in every human life upon that cross. He bore that. Absolute sinless perfection came into contact in bearing our sin in a way that none of us can understand because all we've been is sinners all of, my, all of our lives. And he bore my sin upon that cross when he cries a little bit later uh, and, and declares, Lord, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. The cup that he's wanting to pass from him, in that cup is my sin. And for him to take and what he was going to bear emotionally, what he's going to bear spiritually, mentally upon the cross. And so he goes with them into Gethsemane. He said to the disciples, there are 11 with them now. Judas has gone to betray him. And he said, sit here while I go and I pray and pray over there. And then he took with him, he left eight behind, and he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. You see, this is the emotion that I'm talking about and his contemplation. He began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed, the emotional and the mental agony. And then he said to Peter and James and John, he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. Wow. Now, this is humanity on display. This is an incredible vulnerability of God the Son speaking to three of the apostles, 
and being honest about, and more than honest, he couldn't be anything but honest, but completely open about the condition of his heart and his longing for human fellowship and companionship in what he was facing the night before the cross. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to, the de even to death. He was being pushed in his sorrow and in the exceeding of his sorrow, being pushed to the absolute limit of his endurance. And he said, stay here and watch with me. And there he makes himself vulnerable to these, these three and says, I need your help. I need your company. I need you to watch with me. I need you to pray for me. And how important it is when we face the, again, as we look at Jesus in the humanity side of things, and there's no separating the one from the other, but to me it's an astonishing picture here of how much if he needed that in the depth of the kind of trial he was facing, we will never face a trial that compares to that, but we do face great trials. And the necessity that we have to be able among one another as Christians to make ourselves vulnerable to one another and for it to be safe to do so. To say, I'm in the middle of something right now that makes me exceedingly sorrowful. I need your company. I need your presence. I need your prayer with me in what I'm in the middle of. And to be able to be that open and to be able to be that vulnerable with someone, with the body of Christ as a whole, and not to be judged by it or to be looked down on as a result of it or to disappoint another person as we articulate our need to them. And I consider myself to be a rich man that I have even a handful of people that I can be like that with within the body of Christ. I know there are more that I could be, but these are the ones that I know about and the importance of it. And to just look at ourselves as Christians tonight and to let it search us, again, not in a way to condemn, but to ask, could somebody come to me? in that kind of a depth of trial, and be as open as, and as honest as Jesus is being here, and I would be a friend to them in that situation, and I would support them in that situation, and not look down on them or be disappointed in them because of the greatness of their need. It is a beautiful, beautiful picture of our Savior. And he went a little further, and he fell uh, on his face there in the Garden of Gethsemane. There are certain things, as he has the company of the twelve and then of the three, where he must go a little bit further, and there are certain things in our life that the only one we can interact with in a sense of it being uh, fully effective for our life is the Father, where we go into prayer. And so even with what we've just spoken of here and the importance of that, in each of our lives, in the deepest trials of our lives, there are certain places where only God can speak the Word that can impact us and encourage us and strengthen us in the way that we need. Nobody else can do it 
And I mean, there have been so many times in my life where people have been encouraging. They've said wonderful things, all of this. I'm not putting that down at all. I needed every bit of it. But then on top of all of that, I needed something from the throne of God to help me see this clearly. And he went further and he fell down on his face and he prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, what is the it? Man's salvation. Man's salvation, the forgiveness of our sins. If it is possible, let the, and, and that is our salvation independent of the cross of Calvary. If that is possible, then let this cup pass from me. In the Old Testament, uh, that phrase uh, cup or this cup very often refers to the wrath of God or the judgment of God. We see it in Revelation. We see it in the Old Testament. And that's what it speaks about here, the judgment that our sin deserves and uh, deserved and is now uh, the cup that Jesus is going to have to drink uh, because he's the only uh, substitute, the only sacrifice that is full and satisfying for the forgiveness of our sins. So if it is possible for man to be saved any other way than me going to that cross and not only enduring the physical but the mental and the emotional, the separation from you, then let this cup of your wrath pass from me. And then the surrender, and here he is. You think about it now. A little bit later, there's not going to be any resistance to Calvary on his part. And there hasn't been any resistance to it. I wouldn't characterize this as resistance, but it's the word that came to my mind. But he's known, I came into the world to do this. And yet here again, when it's right on the cusp, here it is that he's going to endure it. There's the desire, if there's any other way, for this cup to pass from him. But in all of it, the surrender, nevertheless, not as I will but as you will. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. And then he came to the disciples, and he found them asleep. And he said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again a second time, Jesus separated himself from the three, and he prayed, saying, oh, my father, If this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And then he came and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And so he left them, went away again, and he prayed a third time, a third time. No response from the Father and the the other two requests. A third time he's waiting for something from the Father that if there might be another way, and yet he prayed a third time saying the same words. And the response of the Father to the prayer of Jesus was silence, was silence, indicating that there is no other way by which we can be forgiven of our sins other than Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins. The person who says in this world that there is another way to heaven other than faith in Jesus Christ not only knows nothing about Calvary and the price that was paid there, they know nothing even about Gethsemane. And so he came to his disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and uh, resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. And so he spoke to that, 
them while they were sleeping in the garden. I think some period of time went by until uh, maybe even a number of hours before the dawn is, is about to occur. And then he speaks in verse 46 to them, prays over them, so to speak, in verse 45, his compassion for them and for us. And then he commands them, waking them up, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, and when Matthew puts in there by the Holy Spirit, one of the twelve, that is a damning statement. It is reminding us of the privilege that uh, Judas had in being one of the twelve, and it was one of the twelve that ultimately betrayed him in this way, as we saw last week, selling him out for uh, thirty pieces of silver. And so he came with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, and they came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Rome had an army, uh, and a a portion of its army, stationed in Jerusalem. Uh, That was for keeping the peace in that part of the Roman Empire. But the Jewish religious leaders, the uh, Sanhedrin and so forth, they also had kind of a religious police force a group of enforcers. And so this was the group that they sent with Judas uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane in order to arrest uh, Jesus. Now, his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, uh, there's going to be some people, there's going to be at least 11 other people in there. You're not going to know them. Apparently, this religious police force, none of them uh, knew Jesus by face. And so whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. And immediately he went up as as he came into the Garden of Gethsemane. He came up to Jesus and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And the word that's used for kiss there is very interesting in the passage. It means to smother with kisses. He didn't just kiss him once. He kissed him over and over again. The other gospels tell us that Jesus then responded, you know, betrayest me with a kiss. And so this is where we get the saying today about being betrayed with a kiss. This is the worst betrayal. The worst betrayals are not betrayals that happen by uh, somebody does in our life that we don't know. They're on the other side of the world or they're on the other side of the block, you know, six houses down, and we don't have a relationship with them. Those betrayals are meaningless to us. They don't hurt. Uh, not at least on any, you know, uh, large level. The worst betrayals are when you are betrayed by someone you have poured your life into, someone that you care about, someone that you love, and then they betray you. And that's, that is the ultimate kind of betrayal. And this is the ultimate pain of betrayal that is brought by Judas uh, to Jesus here, an awful, awful thing. And Jesus said to him again, friend, why uh, have you come? And then they discerned the signal, and they came, and they laid hands on Jesus, and they took him. They arrested him only because he allowed it. John's gospel tells us that he spoke in this same scene, and all of them fell down, and so he yields himself up to them. Again, now he is coming, remember, out of prayer with the Father. 
If there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Silence. There is no other way. The situation is not out of control. It needs to proceed in the way that the Scripture said that it would. And so he allows himself to be arrested. And then suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus, we know from other Gospels that it was Peter, he stretched out his hand. He drew his sword, a fisherman with a sword. Uh, He struck off as he starts to flail, the servant of the high uh, priest. He struck him, and he cut off his ear. So he's going to try and defend God. My attempts to defend God are just as uh, bloody and just as uh, uh, useless. Uh, Jesus has to put his ear back and heal him, as we're told in another gospel. It re- most often it just creates work for God. Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? A Roman legion was 6,000. So Jesus speaks about the availability at a moment's notice to instantly appear upon that scene, 72,000 angels to bring to a halt. It's interesting to sit and and, uh, and uh, be there in the Garden of Gethsemane and kind of watch all of it unfold and then to realize as you're watching all of it to unfold that 72,000 angels in heaven, when they saw Jesus arrested, put their hand on the sword and were ready to be called at just a word to put a stop to what was happening in that Garden of Gethsemane, and no word came. Now, remember the angels. The angels look at our salvation and God's relationship with us as men, and it's a mystery to them. They cannot be saved. They are watching all of this unfold. They are receiving revelation related to it in real time. So this isn't something that they knew, okay, the arrest is going to occur here and so forth and all. They just see the very Son of God, the God of glory being arrested by nothings and nobodies in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they can't understand why they wouldn't be called in a moment to put it to a stop. And Jesus then answers the question, and what he was communicating to Peter was, this is not out of control. Remember in the Old Testament when one angel on a single night wiped out 185,000 troops, Assyrian troops who had invaded the southern kingdom of Judah? That means if you've got 72,000 angels at that kind of a rate, you've got the ability to wipe out 13 million instantly. And it was Jesus' way of saying, the situation is not out of control, Peter. And to assure the disciples, all the rest of them as well, he said, how then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen? All of this is happening just as the Scriptures prophesied they would. And in that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes as they'd come to arrest him, he said, have you come out against the robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. And basically what he's doing is he is confronting them with their cowardice. You had every opportunity to arrest me 
and to, to do it properly and so forth. You come before the dawn breaks. You come in this secret place and so forth, and he's confronting them and their conscience with what they, uh, they know is a dastardly deed that they're involved in. And then he declared to them that all this was done, that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples, uh, to their shock but not to Jesus's, they forsook him and fled as he had told them uh, that they uh, that they would now uh, those who had laid hold of Jesus they led him away to Caiaphas' house he was the uh, high priest at the time and uh, was led to the high priest we know it occurred at his house where the scribes and the elders were assembled now to try Jesus Peter followed him but at a distance. Uh, to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and he sat with the servants there to see the end of what would happen. Now the chief priests and the elders and all of the council, uh, they sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. So you have the high priest, you have uh, the council, which is the Sanhedrin, you have the chief priests, you have the elders. I don't think that the full 71 members of the Jewish Sanhedrin was present, just a selective uh, group. We do know that there was Nicodemus and others who were uh, noble uh, Jews and honest Jews in that position, and I don't believe that they were a part of this at all. This was a select group that had been invited in order to be a part of this trial. On the morning of Jesus' crucifixion, he endured two trials. One was a religious trial, which we're looking at right now, and the second one would be a secular or a, a uh, civil political trial at the hands of uh, uh, Pilate, which will occur a little bit later. And here is the religious trial. The chief priests, the elders, all the council sought false testimony against Jesus. And then notice that word, too, to put him to death. This is the ultimate in a kangaroo court. Kangaroo courts where something is where the person that's been accused, even if they're innocent, has no chance of coming out of that courtroom with anything other than a, a, a guilty verdict. I mean, that when you see that in a Western, that just grates against you how wrong it is to do something like that to another person. This is the epitome of a kangaroo court. They already have the verdict, but now they've got to go through the charade of having a trial. And so the, the desire now is to put him to death, but let's have a trial that allows us to have grounds in order to do that. That was their uh, desire. And, and so they sought false testimony against him. Notice in verse 60, but they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they, couldn't, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward, and they said this was the accusation concerning Jesus. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. And so they had heard Jesus declare that, or they had heard that somebody had heard Jesus declare that, and they were trying to intimate that somehow Jesus was a physical threat to the physical temple in Jerusalem. When Jesus declared, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, he was talking about the temple of his body and the fact that he would raise it up in three days in the resurrection. 
But they take his words, they twist it, they use it against him in this way. The high priest arose and he said then to Jesus, do you answer nothing? Uh, What uh, is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And so all of this is going on again. Put yourself in the room. They've got all of these people trying to bring this accusation, that accusation, in order for an accusation to even be considered within a a Jewish court like this, there had to be two people that had the same accusation. He had to be uh, uh, accused on the basis of two witnesses to, to something. And so they're having trouble finding. They finally find these two. All of this is going on. It's got to be a hubbub that is, is happening. It ought to have been an embarrassment to anyone was there, there, let alone a religious leader. And yet in all of it, Jesus kept completely silent. Didn't answer a single thing. And I think the reason for that is given to us in the latter half of verse 63. The high priest answered, he knows this is going nowhere. And he said to Jesus, I put you under oath by the living God. And the high priest could do that. And a Jew was compelled to then speak the truth under that oath. I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ and the Son of God. He asked Jesus to declare whether he is, number one, the promised Messiah of the Jews, and number two, whether he is the Son of God, that is, divine. And Jesus said to him, he broke his silence. Why did he break his silence? Because for the first time, Jesus was asked a question that was worthy of being answered. And if they were going to deliver him to be crucified, then they were at least going to deliver him to be crucified for the right reason and not some hubbub and nonsense about destroying the temple, but that he would be crucified because he declared himself to be the Jewish Messiah, and the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said, and nevertheless I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus said a mouthful to this religious community. He declared himself to be the Messiah He declared himself to be the Son of God, and he declared that one day he would return to the earth, speaking of his second coming, and he would come in judgment. In other words, gentlemen, at this moment in time, I am being judged by you, but this will not be the final judgment of this scene or of your life. Not only am I the Christ, not only am I the Son of God, but I will come back to this earth, and I will ultimately judge you. And the priest got it, and when the high priest heard it, he tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? 
We've all heard it right from his own mouth. We don't have to get two eyewitnesses uh, here. Look, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And uh, they answered and said, he is deserving of death, which was utter nonsense. But that's what they were there. That was the, they had the verdict ahead of time. And then they spat in his face. They beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? And we're told that uh, elsewhere that uh, in the Scriptures that they put a bag over his head and they began to beat him uh, mercilessly. This is way before Pilate. This is way before the Praetorian Guard. These are religious men. God help me not to be a religious man claiming to represent God. You wouldn't do that to a felon in the name of God. You let justice be meted out, but not you to take it in their hands. And this is what they did. And, and as bad as the beating was, the mocking of him, the scorning, if you're a prophet, if you know all of these things and so forth, then I'm about to punch you and name the name of the person who just hit you with that punch. And one of the terrible things about having a bag over your head while you're being beaten is you can't see the punch coming. You can't roll with the punch. You can at least do that uh, with your eyes open in a fight like that. They just beat him mercilessly there. And, and the horrible, horrible treatment by these Jewish religious leaders. It, I think it's important, and at least it's important to me, and so I assume it will be important to some of you, to realize that everything about this trial of Jesus on that morning is a complete farce. And more than that, it was a violation of the Jews' own laws and understanding of the law of Moses in terms of the conducting of a trial. What they had to work out in their minds and ignore from their own scriptures and from their own traditions to do this, they violated everything in their headlong pursuit of Jesus' crucifixion. According to the oral traditions of the Jews, based upon the law of Moses that would be later put into print and known as the Mishnah, there were very, very specific rules that were to be kept concerning any trial that was brought before the Sanhedrin, which is what's happening here. All criminal cases were only be to be tried during the daytime. They could never be conducted at night or in the dark. All trials had to be completed during the day. This trial is occurring before the day. Criminal cases could not be tried during any of the great feasts of the Jews. They're conducting this during the feast of Passover. Only in a case where the verdict was not guilty could a case be finished on the day that the trial had begun. There could never be a conviction of guilty made on the same day. That always had to be a two-day trial. And if a verdict was the verdict of death, uh, their tradition and their law spoke to them of the fact that a night needed to elapse before that e sentence and that execution was carried out so that the members of the court could make the decree of guilty and make the verdict of death, but at least have one night to sleep upon that verdict. 
No decision of the Sanhedrin was valid unless it occurred in their own meeting place, not in Caiaphas's home. All evidence had to be guaranteed by two witnesses. All witnesses were to be examined separately, and they were never to have any contact with one another. Any false witness or perjury was punishable by death, much less arranging for false witnesses and perjury to occur. Any trial was to begin with the presentation of all of the evidence for the innocence of the accused. The evidence of guilt was to be presented only after the case for his innocence. And each individual member of the Sanhedrin must give his verdict separately, individually, beginning from the youngest and going to the eldest, and they violated every one of those laws in their trial of Jesus. That's how headstrong and eager they were to silence his voice. That's the threat that he was to their power, to their religious system, and the unbelievable amount of money that they were making uh, off of God. And they're looking for any reason here to uh, execute, uh, execute him. Now, Peter, he sat outside in the courtyard, verse 69, and a servant girl came to him and saying, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. And oh, he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you're saying. That's strike one. Jesus said, you'll deny me three times before the night is over. And when he'd gone out in the gardens, another girl, we're not talking like a gladiator confronted them. We're talking about young ladies. Another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath, and he said, I do not know the man. Imagine that. After the history, he walked on water all day, all night for three and a half years with Jesus. Don't they all deny you? I will never deny you. I don't know the man. I wonder why he's going to cry bitter tears in a moment. And it isn't like we don't know something of that. That's why the emotion inside of me, what we're capable of human beings. And a little later, those who stood up, stood by, came up and said to Peter, surely you're one of him, your speech betrays you. Now, we live in the United States. There's a lot of regions in the United States. There's like a lot of different, you know, nations that make up the United States. When you meet someone from Georgia, you know they're from the South from that accent. You say, boy, what an accent they have. But what you don't realize is when you go to California from Georgia, you've got an accent, a West Coast accent. So they knew he had an accent that was Northern. It was Galilean. And so they knew Jesus was from the area of the Galilee. Surely you also were one of them, for your speech betrays you. And then he began to curse and to swear, and he's saying, I do not know the man, said it a second time. Now, when he curses and he swears here, don't imagine him using profanity. Uh, what he's doing is he's calling down and saying, may God curse me if I'm not telling you the truth. I swear to God that I do not know the man. This is what he's doing in the cursing and the swearing. And then immediately a rooster crowed as Jesus prophesied would happen. And we know in another section of Scripture that 
Peter, well, here it is. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. He ever failed the Lord? Oh, my. I'll never fail you, Lord. I will never fail you. I will huff and I will puff and I will blow that house down. You don't have to worry about me. You don't have to warn me about... It's interesting when Jesus warns the disciples and tells them they're going to deny him, whenever Jesus warns us about anything, it's never because he's like looking for something to do. It means we need the warning and always to take heed of that warning. And so they failed and all of us fail in our relationship with the Lord. And Peter teaches us as we scratched the surface a little bit last week. When he said, I will never deny you, though they kill me, I will never deny you. He meant that. What happened here is inconceivable in his mind. It just cannot happen. And it teaches us that no amount of determination, no amount of personal strength, no amount of even love for God or history with God can provide us with the power that we need to be able to stand with Jesus Christ in this world and live faithfully for him. And that's why when we get into the book of Acts and we see an entirely different Peter standing up, not before young maidens, but before a religious crowd uh, on the Feast of Pentecost there in Jerusalem, and he preaches that sermon where 3,000 people are saved. He's transformed what? Because he read a book on positive thinking? No, because he received the baptism with the Holy Spirit. There is no substitute for the baptism with the Holy Spirit in living this Christian life. And if your life tonight, in the privacy of your heart, Your life, your Christian life, is one of just continual failure. I'm going to, I'm determined, I love God, I want to stand for Him, and you leave the house at 7.30 in the morning, and by 11 o'clock it's bitter tears. And that's a cycle, a characteristic in your Christian life, and you, you say, what in the world... You know, I want to do better than this. What's happening to me is, can I ever get out of this particular situation? And the answer to that is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into our life when we're born again. But the baptism with the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit coming upon our lives, giving us the power to be witnesses to Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And I remember when I was a brand-new Christian... And I had been exposed to the things of the Lord earlier in my uh, junior high and high school uh, life. And, and I committed my life to the Lord at the age of 25 and uh, settled that issue of His Lordship within my life. But I didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit, and I had been... My exposure to Christianity was dispensationalist related to the Holy Spirit. There was nothing about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and so forth. And so I gave my life to the Lord, and now I rolled up my sleeves, and now I'm going to try and live this life, this Christian life, in my own strength. 
and I wanted to, and I was determined to, and I loved God, and I wanted to live this life and all, and it was absolute misery. It's all written for you if you ever want to read it sometime. It's all of our autobiographies before the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's called Romans chapter 7. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of sin? And the cry then gives way to Romans chapter 8, which is filled with the Holy Spirit. And I remember being at a bee box. I was a cable splicer at the time for Pacific Bell. And I was at a bee box at Buman and Old Sonoma Road in Napa, California. And I was putting in some wires to take care of some kind of a situation. And I said to the Lord, I said, Lord, if I don't start being able to enjoy this Christian life, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And what that meant was I didn't need, like, God to give me a Cadillac or something, but it was a, a prayer in my own way that he understood was for the power to live this life, and, and he baptized me with the Holy Spirit as a result of that. And I say that because without the baptism with the Holy Spirit, it's just a continual life of failure, it's a continual life of disappointment, and it's a continual life of bitter tears. And God let Peter fail here. Peter's faith did not fail. Uh, what failed here was his strength. And we remember, as we looked last week, the thing behind all of this with Peter was his pride. That was the genesis of, of his failure here. All of us need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have a power operating in your life, as Jesus said, that gives you the power, doesn't mean that there isn't a battle and there isn't warfare and there isn't temptation, but there is the power to live for him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, any environment that we find ourselves in life, then ask tonight for that baptism with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, and we do, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit tonight just for the asking. This is a very sad place, and uh, um, I, I have lived it, and I lived it significantly in the early part of my Christian life. I understand all about it, and I want any of us to know that there's a way out, and it's called the baptism uh, with the Holy Spirit. Somebody says, oh, I don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe that you get everything when you're, you know, first saved, and it's all there. And, and so, well, let's not get hung up on the terminology. In John chapter 7, Jesus spoke about the baptism with the Holy Spirit, and he described it as a torrent of living water, the Holy Spirit, coming out of our innermost being. Not only the power for me to be refreshed by God and to walk this Christian life, but then for there to be an overflow to impact the world around me. And if that doesn't represent your Christian experience, and you don't like the term baptism with the Holy Spirit, then go to John chapter 7. All I care is that you get what God's got for you tonight, and that's the Holy Spirit's desire as well. And then when the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people, they plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they took him away and they delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. So the Jews have a problem. 
The kangaroo court has all been in session, and they've got their guilty verdict. The problem is, is they're part of the Roman Empire, and they have no legal means by which to execute Jesus. Rome uh, held to itself the right of capital punishment within the Roman Empire. So the Jewish religious leaders know that they've got to involve Rome, they've got to involve Pontius Pilate, and so they do. And that's why they approach uh, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, uh, 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 appointed by Caesar Tiberius. He had all of the authority of Rome right there in Judea. He is in that place, and they come now and they're going to try, they're, they're going to endeavor. They don't know that they're going to be successful, but they're going to endeavor to pull Pontius Pilate into their plan, twist him up in the whole thing, and then uh, make him kind of a, a tool for getting their end. And so they brought him then uh, to uh, Pontius Pilate. And then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, he was remorseful. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. So there is the remorse of Judas, but there isn't a repentance here. It's kind of like if you were to go to a prison and you were to, uh, you know, interview half of the inmates in that prison. You would uh, talk with maybe half of the inmates in that prison, and they would say, I am remorseful and I am repentant. I am uh, not only sorry that I got caught for the crime that I committed, I am sorry that I committed the crime. And then there would be another group of people who would say, I'm not sorry at all that I committed the crime, I'm just sorry I got caught. And Judas is in that latter category. It is interesting, as we mentioned last week, he's still got all 30 pieces of that silver. He never, ever uh, uh, spent a penny of it. And he said to the Jewish religious leaders, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Another witness in the Scriptures to the fact that Jesus was sinless, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If Judas had seen even one sin in Jesus' life, he would have pulled that out as an excuse for this betrayal. But with Jesus, three and a half years, you wonder why would Jesus allow that guy into the inner circle? Why would he allow the betrayal? Why would he allow, why would he allow, at least in part, to produce another witness to every moment of his public ministry that never did he speak a sin, never did he commit a sin. And they said to him, what is that to us you see to it? Listen, if you make a bargain with the devil, and now you want to turn around on that bargain of the devil, and if you think the devil's going to feel sorry for you and me because we made that choice and now the consequences are coming on our head, then we don't know the devil and we don't know his instruments. They used Judas Iscariot. He allowed himself to be used, but now they got out of him what they wanted, and it's like, we don't have anything to do with you. We're not going to help you. You did what you did. You see to it. And then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple, and he departed, and he went out, and he hanged himself. He committed suicide. We know from a passage in the book of Acts, is the whole picture is put together in Scriptures, that he hung himself from a limb on a tree. It was over some kind of a precipice of some kind. The limb broke, and then he fell to the ground on some kind of rocks of some kind, and his 
uh, gut spilled open, and that's uh, how he died. And then the chief priests, they took the silver pieces and they said, it's not lawful to put them uh, in the treasury because they're the price of blood. These 30 pieces of silver, they've been tainted by uh, blood, by the betrayal of innocent blood, and so we can't put it into the treasury. I mean, come on. Straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel, you're going to crucify the Son of God who you can't find one thing to convict him of, but you're going to be very scrupulous about the fact that you can't take any money that was used to betray another person and put it within the treasury. I'll tell you what our minds are capable of. God help us to be free from it. And they consulted together, and they thought, what are we going to do with these 30 pieces of silver? And they bought with them the potter's field in order to bury strangers or Gentiles in. A potter's field was just a field where potters, when they would do their pottery and all, and then the pottery would break or it wouldn't be quite right, they'd break it themselves. And they would just go to this piece of land and put all the broken pottery in it. It would work its way into the soil. It was useless. Nobody could build on it. Nobody could plant on it. And so it was cheap, and that's what they used. And we'll we'll turn it into a graveyard for Gentiles or strangers, and therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And then it was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they uh, of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor. Now he's brought before Pilate, and the governor asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? Now, again, this is interesting. The first question out of uh, Pilate's mouth is a question that's worth an answer. And so Jesus answered it. He said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. In other words, Jesus knows that he's going to end up crucified here, and he's going to be found guilty. But what he wants Pilate to know is that he is going to end up being crucified, not because of any of the accusations of the Jewish religious leaders, but because he was and is the king of the Jews. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, and here is just a reenactment of what had happened at Caiaphas's house, all of these swirling accusations and so forth, Jesus didn't say anything in the face of all of that. What's he going to do with it? He came in order to do this. He was slain from the foundation of the world. He is headed now determinately to the cross. And Pilate watches all of these accusations going on, and he said to Jesus, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And Jesus answered him not one word so that the governor marveled greatly. Now, imagine this, Pilate, his portion, probably a daily portion for him, is to have people accused either uh, falsely or righteously brought to him, and then the accusations are made against the person, and then that person in a desperation to save their lives and to correct and refute the accusations that are being made against him goes into an emotional frenzy to fight and, and the whole argument that would go on. This is what he's used to seeing. But here is Jesus with all of the accusations going on, and he doesn't say anything. This wasn't something Pilate saw ever. 
And again, Jesus is not going to disrupt in the mind and the heart of Pilate what he had already spoken to him about why he's ultimately going to end up on the cross, and it's because he was the king of the Jews. You say, was it an effective way to deal with Pilate? Yes, as we'll see a little bit later, the sign that Pilate has put up in multiple languages over Jesus on the cross, this is the king of the Jews. No, it's stuck. It's stuck. Now at the feast, and let me say this, Pilate makes to me three great mistakes in this entire situation. And Pilate's going to realize very, very quickly that he's being pulled into something. He knows, and he's going to realize even more so in just a moment, that all of this is false, that Jesus is completely innocent, that he's been delivered up because of the envy of these religious leaders. And he realizes he's being pulled into a web, and ultimately, he, he really resents. He knows he's being manipulated. He's being caught in this storm that, he's, that he is in. And here he comes, here comes this situation. There's no accusations that he's worthy of death. And, and what Pilate ought to have done is he ought to have slammed the door at that moment. And he should have put a stop to all of this. There's no reason for their death, his death. You've brought no reason for his crucifixion or capital punishment here. Get out of my property. Get out of my hearing hall. Get out of here and slam the door. If he had only done the right thing, as soon as he realized what the right thing was, everything would have changed. Pilate's name is Mud in human history. His name is forever associated with what he did with Jesus Christ on that day. Think about how different the day would have been if he had simply said, this is wrong, this is bogus, I will not have any part in this, and slammed the door on all of it, made his decision and said, no, I'm not going to be a part of that and made that right decision immediately, everyone would remember him differently in history. Ah, but there's a bigger picture that's being played out prophetically. We know that, but he's still responsible. Let me ask you, and, and let it search my own heart tonight. The best place to say no to something that I need to say no to is the moment I realize it. And he should have shut that door that second because he keeps that door open. And the longer it goes, the harder it is then for him to stop what's happening. And in your life maybe tonight, my life tonight, is there something that you're getting pulled into? Something that you're maybe even leading yourself into and you know that it is wrong. And you think it might be easier to say no further down the road. It won't. It will only be harder. The moment we know it's wrong, that's the moment to act decisively. And he makes that mistake. May none of us make that mistake tonight in whatever we're facing. 
Now, at the feast, and here Pilate tries compromise uh, with them. He's going to try and appease them. And he remembered, okay, i got a whole riot going on here, and it's a tough situation. I want to do justice. I want to represent the law uh, of Rome properly. I want to appease these Jewish religious leaders. After all, i got to get along with them. And he's, he's thinking, okay, how can I get out of this? And he remembered that at the time of the Passover, on an annual basis, that it was the custom of the Roman government to release whatever prisoner of the Jews that Rome had in order to build goodwill with the Jewish population. So this comes into his mind, and he thinks, this is the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to get Jesus released on this basis before the multitude because I'm going to give them the choice between Jesus and a notorious criminal by the name of Barabbas. And so here's the attempt to compromise in the middle of this uh, great temptation and test. And the feast, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. He was also a murderer. He was a robber. He was an insurrectionist, we know. And therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, he said, whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent a message to him saying, I have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders, they persuaded the multitude that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor answered, and he said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? It, it doesn't... It, it, doesn't even enter into Pilate's mind, given that choice that they would ask for Barabbas. This is the shock then when they began to cry out, Barabbas, and Pilate then said to him, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And I'll tell you, that sentence has been sermon fodder since the moment it was written down. Never ever let anyone make that decision for you in terms of what you do with Christ, and certainly not a crowd or a mob. That's something we have to decide for ourselves. What then should I do with Jesus who is called Christ? He knew what to do. He already knew what to do. Don't leave it with the crowd. And so they then spoke to him him and said, And they all said to him, let him be crucified. And the governor said, why, what evil has he done? Ah, you're back to this now. And uh, But it's too late. He's let so much water flow now under the bridge. But they cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. Now, sometimes you'll read about um, people talking about the fickleness of Jesus' disciples, how that on the... Uh, uh, Sunday of his triumphal entry a week before uh, the Sunday before his crucifixion and how people cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed uh, is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this crowd in Jerusalem recognizing him to be the Messiah. And then they say, now look here, four days later, three days later, um, here is this crowd turning now, calling on him to be crucified. I think they're two entirely different crowds. The crowd that cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is very early in the morning. They barely had their first cup of coffee. 
They're not out part of being a, some kind of a religious riot for the crucifixion of Jesus. This is a mob that the religious leaders have put together. And so I, I don't believe people, I don't believe that they're the same crowds and that that particular observation uh, bears weight. I think that they're two entirely different crowds. And when Pilate, he saw what was going on here, and here he's trying, he's trying to be a people pleaser and, and, uh, and rather than being a God pleaser. He knows what to do here. And, uh, and, and again, you, you put compromise together, a failure to slam the door on temptation and desiring to please people over God when you know what God wants, and that is a recipe for catastrophe for any of us in our lives on any issue in life. It is certainly what you don't want to put in a row related to the most important decision that we'll make in life. And Pilate, when he saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude, and he said, I am innocent of the blood of this just person you see to it. Too late. Nobody washes their hands of Jesus. We are all of us, every person in this world, forever marked by what we do with him, no matter what other people think about him or they don't think about him. It's not that easy. And he said, you see to it. And he acquiesces, he, he fails to stand in the position that, that he ought to have stood. And all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and on our children. They feel like somehow Pilate is so strong in defending Jesus, they feel like they still haven't got this thing won. They still haven't sealed this all of the way, that Pilate might be hedging here a little bit. And so they throw in this caveat of, well, let the guilt not be upon you, let it be upon our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Let me take a moment and just read to you as we uh, close here in the situation uh, in, in what we're closing up here, one little kind of epilogue related to uh, Pilate and what ended up happening uh, to him. The rest of the story concerning Pilate's life is that in A.D. 35, just a couple of years after he had ordered the crucifixion of Jesus, Pilate brutally put down a... a religious pilgrimage led by a Samaritan false prophet. And he apparently viewed this pilgrimage as a revolt against his rule. He sent in military, he sent in chariots, and they intercepted the pilgrims and they slaughtered uh, virtually all of them. The Samaritans then complained to Vitellius, who was the prefect of Rome in Syria. That was Pilate's. He was Pilate's immediate supervisor, who then ordered Pilate to return to Rome to give an account for the slaughter before Caesar Tiberius. And as a result of that trial before Caesar Tiberius, Pilate was relieved of his position in Judea and Jerusalem, and from that moment on, he completely disappears from history. And the fascinating thing about it is that just two years later, Pilate ends up losing all of the position and the power and the fame and the reputation and the high esteem of bad people that he had tried so hard on that day to hold on to by compromising his convictions, what he knew to be true about Jesus, and ultimately he lost all of it anyway.
And the lesson for us is that what is true of Pilate will also be true of every single person who rejects Christ for the same reason. We will ultimately lose everything that we reject him for and every relationship that we reject him for. Pilate is an outstanding example in the Scriptures of how not to handle something, and that is tremendous instruction. And may it search our hearts as we head for home here in a moment and uh, tonight to just make sure we don't find ourselves in some kind of a demonic tumult or someone in our neighborhood or appears at school or at work or whatever it might be, and we find ourselves here trying to compromise where we need to make a stand and uh, trying to please people that can never be pleased and, and uh, when we have to choose between them and God and to make the proper choice. And never is that more important than making Jesus our Savior. If you're not a Christian here tonight, there'll be pastors and other men and women up in front this evening after the service. We'd love to pray with you to give your life to Christ this evening. If you need prayer for anything, we'd love to pray for you as well. Let's stand together and we'll close. Father, in the words of the old song, thank you, God, for sending Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. Holy Spirit, teach us more about his holy name. Thank you for this passage tonight. Heavenly Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, we thank you for all that you endured, all that you have done in order for us to be saved and forgiven tonight. And we know that, Lord, even in our study of your word tonight, we have but scratched the surface of it. We are humbled by your love for us and your love for our soul long before we even esteemed it valuable. We bless you tonight. We thank you tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Mike, would you close us?